Yes. Welcome to Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy, a production of FlagandBanner.com. Through storytelling and conversational interviews, this weekly radio show and podcast offers listeners an insider's view into starting and running a business, the ups and downs of risk-taking, and the commonalities of successful people. Connect with Carrie through her candid, often funny, and always informative weekly blog. There, you'll read, learn, and make comment about her life as a 21st century wife, mother, daughter, and entrepreneur. And now, it's time for Carrie McCoy to get all up in your business. Thank you, Gray. My guest today saves lives, improves lives, and teaches us about the brain. It's not every day you get to speak to a brain surgeon. Many of us don't even know one. They're a rare breed, even among doctors. But today is your lucky day because after 36 years in practice, neurosurgeon Dr. Stephen Cathy has retired and graciously accepted an invitation to today's Up In Your Business show. We're going to pick his brain. I'm sorry, I just couldn't resist. <laughs> Thank you, Carrie. I, You've never I, heard that before. As I was you? telling Chris, when you called me out as a neurosurgeon, uh, first words were kind of a letdown when you meet one in person, isn't it? Oh, it is not true. <laughs> it is not true. We're going to find out from you what it's like to be you. And we're going to find out about the future of the burgeoning new science, brains research. Isn't that kind of a new science? It is. Mm -hmm. It is. And the technology is advancing so quickly. Things that 30 years ago required a scalpel and an anesthesiologist are now being done by interventional radiologists with a much lower mortality and morbidity rate. Uh, aneurysm clipping, treatment of trigeminal neuralgia, all of those things are brave new frontiers. You are an Arkansas native attending Monticello High School and the University of Arkansas at Monticello. I'm a bow weevil, yes. <laughs> Graduating, of course, with both from both with high honors. On combined scholarships, you attended the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences. And in 1983, 82 and 83, you did your surgery internship at Baylor University Medical Center in Dallas, Texas. And after that, lucky for us, you returned back to Little Rock, Arkansas and began your long career as a neurosurgeon. In the last decade, I think this is interesting. You have been selected accumulatively three times by the Arkansas Times and AY Magazine as either the best doctor or the best physician. Pat yourself on the back. I will. Thank you, Carrie. Apart from being a surgeon, you are a teacher, an orator, and a published author. And I'm going to see if I can say these titles because I just think it's fun to Mm -hmm. talk to a neurosurgeon and get to use words like this because you never get to say things like this. (laughs) Some of your articles are, you can correct me if I do it wrong, Paraplegia caused by coartation coartation of the A order and hydrocephalus. Hydrocephalus, yes. Hydrocephalus. That was one of your articles. The other one is the Camino Intracranial Pressure Monitor, performance in experimental and clinical trials. And most recently, you were published an article called The Politics of Infection Disease. That one I can get my head around. That was a fun project for me. Because I work with some incredibly smart people at UAMS that are infectious disease specialists, and I I had a lot of fun writing that article. Well, you're going to tell us all about it. It's a pleasure to welcome to the table my super smart nerves of steel neurologist, Dr. Stephen Cathay. Well, I'm not a neurologist. I'm a neurosurgeon. And you know the the difference between a a neurologist and a neurosurgeon? No, I have no idea. About 300 grand a year. (laughs) (laughs) And he's funny. (laughs) So what is a neurologist? A neurologist is one of the specialties we really lean on hard. They do a lot of the diagnostics, nerve testing, imaging studies, this, that, and the other. The neurosurgeon is the one who actually operates on the patient who mm-hmm. uses does the, the surgery does the surgery that's correct so i usually when i think of somebody like you i think that they came from probably a long line of family doctors but when i read your bio i don't think that's true my mom and dad were school teachers and uh, my mother was a nurse of, at the toward the end but yeah i i uh, was raised in south arkansas and uh, my dad basketball coach school teacher my mother the same ultimately a nurse so no no doctors in the family and i have two children neither of which have pursued a career in medicine 
Let's just tell everybody what your son does. This, My, is, this is how I first met you, actually. He's a lawyer and a captain in the U.S. Marine Corps. Very, I, very proud of that kid. Absolutely. And I met you because um, you bought a flagpole for your backyard so you could put a Marine flag up. As a matter of fact, the last time I, I remember seeing you was at the grand opening of my flagpole. <laughs> <laughs> And you know, Carrie, if I had one regret about that flagpole, okay, tell me, it wasn't big enough. Oh I, my I, gosh, it's I, forty feet tall. I isn't want, it? I wanted to look like a car dealership. Well, it, it's it's a good one. Let <laughs> me tell it, you, I, I love that. I had my Marine Corps flag, my American flag, my Arkansas flag, so it was great. I, I love it. That's really it. A, was a blessing. How? What do you think he decided to do that? You think you're an example for him on working hard? I would like to think so. I'd like to think I was inspiration for my son. Did he uh, always want to be a Marine? Some kids do. He went to Hendricks College, and which is traditionally sort of a liberal thinking, mm-hmm. liberal leaning college, and he was one of the only military kids on campus. But really? he he loved the Marine Corps. He loved what it stood for, stands for, and he's excelled. So well, let's not leave your daughter out. I feel like if we talk about your son, we have to talk about your daughter. She's very successful too. Yeah, she's where I, she's the reason I don't have any money. Uh, she's at Columbia. <laughs> she's in New York right now. That's a now. good girl. That's what those girls are supposed to do. All right. Keep going. Yep. Yeah, she's in graduate school at Columbia University in New York City uh, on doing broadcast journalism. That's what she'd like and to do. And she's worked on what shows? She's been on the Today Show. She's been on uh, Jimmy Fallon. Uh, in the back, in production yes, of those shows. Yes, not, right. Not, not, in, not in front of the camera, behind, but behind the, camera. the camera. And she just finished two years in Los Angeles working for Ellen DeGeneres. And she met everybody from Justin Timberlake to Michelle Obama. She it, got a good story for any of them? All of them. All Great of them. stories. So you uh, went. To, when did you decide you wanted to be a surgeon? You went to high school like everybody. And then you went to Monticello, University of Arkansas, Monticello. What was your what was your uh, what did you think you were going to be when you went there? Did you know you wanted I, to be a brain I, surgeon? I knew I wanted to be a doctor from and I, early I, on. Early on, just always, like your son, knew always, what you wanted to be. I, I knew I, I was fortunate because a lot of kids these days they really don't know, and mm-hmm. we ask eighteen year old kids to make a career decision when they don't know what they want to do. But my, but I was fortunate in that way, and I'll tell you the reason. You're going to laugh. Uh, my senior year of medical school. I decided I wanted to be a neurosurgeon because the neurosurgical trainees, the residents, the interns, the staff, and you're going to laugh, but they had the best-looking girlfriends and wives of any of the other trainees. And it was like, these are the coolest guys in the world. They're going to have the most money. Those girls are smart. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I want to be like these guys. But n- n- all kidding aside, mm-hmm. I, I love the brain. I love the study of neurosciences. I love the neurological diseases and Anyway, that's where I am today. So you ended up going to Baylor in Dallas. I did. Spent a year in Dallas. Did your do they call it residency or surgery? Internship. Internship. Yeah, surgery it, it, internship. That's right. General surgery. Did you know appendectomies, gallbladders, hernia repairs, circumcisions. I mean, just kind of the basics. And then returned to Arkansas in the summer of nineteen eighty three and began my residency training at in neurosurgery. Wanted to come back to Little Rock. Absolutely. I'm an Arkansas boy. All the way. If someone wanted to go into your profession, do you have anything to recommend to them right now? Yes. Uh, study hard. Uh, try to make good grades because it's a very competitive program to be a neurosurgery resident. Dr. John Day, as chairman of neurosurgery at UAMS, does a fantastic job. But, you know, they pick the best, the brightest, and the guys and girls with the, you know, the, you know, the best grades, best academics, and the most successful. And, and that's just the nature of the business. Did you ever make an attempt and fail at something and then have to come back and like take another course again? Or were you just sailing through everything? I sailed. I was lucky. I had great, uh, I had great teachers, great professors, and I, I really never suffered any setbacks in my training. That's pretty unusual. That's a great brain. Well, it's a Were, big old do, brain. Do you even give your brain to science? I, I think I could give my brain to science. <laughs> I, I'm not sure what it would it probably weighs about two pounds. I could throw it. <laughs> 
All right. This is a great place That's to a take a perfect call. question. I've never had that before. <laughs> <laughs> when we come back, we'll continue our conversation with retired neurosurgeon Dr. Stephen Cathy. We'll pick his brain again. Sorry. Oh, my God. About, no pun intended. I know. I can't help myself. <laughs> about life as a specialized surgeon, about the burgeoning science of brain research and the secrets it may unlock, and last, what he's doing today after retirement. We'll be back after the break. Up in your business with Carrie McCoy. A production of FlagandBanner.com. We'll be right back. You're listening to Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy, a production of FlagandBanner.com. Over 40 years ago, with only $400, Carrie McCoy founded Arkansas Flag and Banner. During the last four decades, the business has grown and changed, starting with door-to-door sales, then telemarketing, to mail order and catalog sales. And now a third of their sales come through the internet. And this past year, Flag and Banner added another internet feature, live chatting. Over time, Carrie's business and leadership knowledge grew. And as early as 2004, she began sharing her knowledge in her weekly blog. And then in 2009, she founded the nonprofit Friends of Dreamland Ballroom. And then in 2014, started an in-house publication, Brave Magazine. Now she has branched out into radio with this very production, podcast, and live stream. Each week on this show, you'll hear candid conversations between her and her guests about real-world experiences on a variety of businesses and topics that we hope you'll find interesting and inspiring. If you'd like to ask Carrie a question or share your story, send an email to questions at upyourbusiness.org. That's questions at upyourbusiness.org. Or send her a message on flagandbanner.com's Facebook page. And now, back to Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy. We are listening to Up In Your Business with me, Carrie McCoy. I'm cutting it up with Steve Cathy, Dr. Steve Cathy. We're old friends. We go way back. Before the break, we talked about how smart you are. <laughs> no, we Thank talked you. about uh, being a neurosurgeon, your life in Monticello, you know, how competitive it is to become one and how you just really need to work hard. Uh, but being a brain surgeon is not for the faint of heart. Uh, my friend Kathy, when I, she asked me this week, she said, who are you having on? I said, oh, I'm having on Dr. Kathy. He's a brain surgeon. She said, you know, when I'm having a bad day, I look at my friends and say, well, at least I'm not having to do brain surgery. <laughs> I said, like, yeah, who wants to ever do that? So uh, I really wanted to be a rocket scientist, but I oh, ended really? up going to brain surgery. <laughs> no. <laughs> so seriously, what is it like to play God? Oh, Carrie, you know, it, it it's a very awesome and humbling experience to take care of someone and to know that during some of these surgeries, some of these procedures take 10, 12 hours and you're operating through a tiny opening in someone's brain and it's tedious, punctuated by sheer panic when something starts to bleed or you get into part of the brain you really didn't mean to get into. You know, you make a technical error, things like that. And, And as we talked earlier, one of the advances in neuroscience has been this um, less invasive procedures where you no longer have to open the skull. You can actually do it through a catheter into the brain to clip an aneurysm or to treat a brain tumor. And it's been extremely, uh, it's profoundly limited the, the risk of surgery and bleeding and death and morbidity. So, yeah, it gets better every day. The technology is getting you better. You started every day. 36 years ago. I did. So that would be like 1992. Oh. No, 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 82. That would be yeah, 82. Yeah, that's right. Boy, there have been huge advances in 30 years. Absolutely. I mean, it used to be, um, for example, one, one condition is called trigeminal neuralgia, which is a painful condition of the face caused by the fifth cranial nerve, trigeminal nerve. And in the old days, we would go in and literally explore the nerve, uh, lesion the nerve to prevent pain. Now we have what's called radiosurgery, or the gamma knife, which we radiate the nerve. What do you mean you radiate the nerve? You send a high pulse of gamma radiation directed 
in a very small area around the nerve. And it kills the nerve? It kills the nerve. Well, it kills the painful aspects of the nerve. And um, it's it's been revolutionary. Can we just do that everywhere? Can we do it on your on like your feet people have nerve damage in their feet can you do that everywhere no not everywhere but the technology is advancing so i think someday you will be able to not even have to use a scalpel what'd you call that try trigeminal neuralgia you know that's pretty common it is it's and a very painful condition of the face my daughter has that is that right okay she does she got it from a dental procedure that's right absolutely that's one of the complications of root canals or dental surgery she just had a tooth pulled yep. and then she kept complaining about it and i thought you're yeah. just crazy she had injury to her trigeminal nerve in, mo- in, in all likelihood and it's treatable but it's horribly painful yes how do you stop and smell the roses when you're as smart as you are and driven as you are? How do you get pleasure out of life of just saying, okay, now I'm not doing it right now. I just want to stop and kind of not think for a minute. I miss it every day. You do. I miss it every day. And, you know, I just you get to a point in your career, which I think most physicians do, you get to a point where you realize you've been doing this too long and there are smarter guys, younger guys, more energetic guys that do it better. So it's time to take a step back. And that's what I did. I was actually chairman of the state medical board. And then after I retired, I stepped down as chairman. Uh, But that was a fabulous experience being on the state medical board. I was originally appointed by by Governor Beebe and then reappointed by Governor Hutchinson, two of the finest men I've ever known in my life. And uh, I was lucky and blessed enough to serve the people of Arkansas in that capacity. And that that probably was the high point of my professional career. What are you going to do now? Well, I'd say play golf. Yes. <laughs> Chris agrees. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> play golf. Uh, I <laughs> Hang out with my kids, yeah. They're not going to hang out with you. No, they won't. They don't now. <laughs> All right, t- tell us what it's like when you were a practicing when you were a practicing surgeon. What's your day like? How many did you do a week? What did you do the day? How many did you do? Did you? I mean, a ten or twelve hour surgery? You could only do one a week, maybe. That's right. No, I, I never. I always did at least two or three cases a week. How did you manage? What did you get up? You start at five in the morning. Yeah. You, you wake up. Yep. You get your coffee. You take a shot of liquor. So I you didn't. Do, I, calm your nerves. That's you know what, what I'd have to do. Honestly, taking a shot of liquor is better than a shot of coffee because you don't want your hand to have a tremor. Oh. You you, you really have to have very steady hands and caffeine promotes trimmers so i didn't drink coffee on days i operated but and i I honestly didn't drink (laughs) (laughs) after surgery that was a whole 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 other story so you get up you start what time do you start in the middle in the day well at the peak of my career you're right i would i would be up at 5 30 and you would go and make rounds on the patients that you had operated on the day before because you had to be in the operating room at 7 o'clock. So you had to be there by 5, 30, 6 o'clock. So you could just check on everyone you'd done surgery on the day before. And then you might get home at 10 o'clock at night. And then you've also got to figure in to see new clients. That's right. Yeah, I had I had clinic days, which is, are days where you, uh, you see patients in your office. And uh, you try to diagnose them, and not everyone needs surgery. You know, a lot of folks, you need to prescribe physical therapy, medication, do testing, and that's what I would do on my days when I was not operating. And those were fun days, too. You liked all of it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I would think if I was a surgeon, I would only like surgery. Well, surgery was absolutely the most rewarding part of it. Plus, you got paid better. Yeah, yeah. And so, did you have nurses that you worked with all yes. the time? The same group? Were they your nurses or the hospital's nurses? They were the hospital nurses, but they were assigned to me. Uh, for the last ten years, I worked at Arkansas Surgical Hospital, and I had I had tremendous nurses. They were awesome. I had tremendous nurse anesthetists, anesthesia, and and. Uh, circulating nurses and all that i i i I, it's all part of a team you're you're not the only guy out there doing this you you got to lean heavily on your nurses and your anesthesia and your radiology techs and those kinds of so when you when you're doing a 12-hour surgery you can't not don't you have to stop to eat i've always wondered about that 
always had to stop to go to the bathroom and to go to, and to eat uh, no eating was not a big factor you can look at me and tell that wasn't a big deal <laughs> what does that mean <laughs> oh, just you know I, I, food never really factored into it but you know you do have to take a break occasionally because you start to go cross-eyed staring That's what I would into, think. A, into i would a, not want a 12-hour surgery well and i would think you would only peak for a few hours in the day, and the rest of the time, like you said, you're poking have, the wrong part. I have never understood surgeons who will start an elective case at 7 o'clock at night. I don't really think that's fair to the patient. I don't, you're I don't, I can't tired. Believe. You've been working for 12 hours, and now you're going to start doing a case at 7 p.m. I mean, it's, I, to, I never thought that was a good practice. I, I never did that. I don't even want to be after lunch. I want to be <laughs> You want to be that first person absolutely in the morning. Absolutely, right, when Carrie. they're fresh. Unless they drink a lot, then I want to be maybe the second. <laughs> and I always ask the guy if I have to go in for anything. I say, please don't drink the night before. He said, oh, yeah, whatever. You would not believe how often that question comes up. Oh, I bet. I always say, now you're not going to get drunk the night before. And they go, no, just a little bit. They always tease me a little bit. So I know it's such a stressful job. And I know you've had to lose some patients or been disappointed in your surgeries. Absolutely. How do you deal with that? I had a case. That you, when you mentioned that, one comes to mind. This patient had a vertebral artery aneurysm, which is a very rare aneurysm at the very base of the brain. And an aneurysm is like a balloon on an artery in the brain, and they bleed. And I had spent about 12 hours getting this aneurysm exposed and dissected and putting the clip on it. And after 12 hours, everything going perfectly it ruptured and the patient died on the operating table. And it's just so, I mean, it really is the most frustrating, heartbreaking. You have to go out and tell the family, you know, patient didn't make it. And everything was perfect. And I will say this, and in over 30 years of practice, I never had a malpractice case against me. That's good. Yeah, I mean, I never, I never Well, I was never negligent, I'd like to think, in treating my my flock, my patients. Your flock. Yeah, they are my flock. Do you just have to turn it over to to the universe and say, you know, it was his time. I did everything I could do. Yeah. You have to let go, don't you? You do. You do. And it it haunts you. I mean, you think about it all the time. What if I'd I'd done that? What ifs? The what ifs? Absolutely. What if I'd have done this? What if I'd done that? So how do you deal with that? Well, you just move on to the next patient. You know, if you don't have any, well, I've thought about this this morning. If you don't have any what ifs, then I don't think you're living your life full, and full I think, enough. I think that's true of every profession. Mm-hmm. You know, firemen, policemen, I mean, we all have things that we look back on and say, had I done this differently, would there have been a better outcome? Mm-hmm. Um, when we come back, we'll continue our conversation with retired neurosurgeon surgeon, Dr. Stephen Cathy. You don't have to say retired so loud. <laughs> okay. We'll, re- we'll, we'll, we'll continue our conversation with retired neurosurgeon, Dr. Stephen Cathy. I have a feeling you're going to be unretired within a year. I do know friends that do that. Good possibility. Yeah. In the next segment, we'll talk about the burgeoning science of brain research and get Dr. Cathy's take on it. And last, Cathy wrote an article for Arkansas Medical Science Public. I guess that's what AMS stands for. Uh, Arkansas Medical Society. Society. I tried to guess. Arkansas Medical Society publication called The Politics of Infection Disease. I'm very curious. If you read that, you would probably be one of the only ones. So. Of course I did not read it. I do not read anyway anything. So, no, I didn't read it. That's why you're here. You're going to tell us what it said. We'll talk more after the break. Up in Your Business with Carrie McCoy. A production of FlagandBanner.com. We'll be right back. Here's a message from Dreamland Ballroom, upstairs in Taborian Hall, home of FlagandBanner.com. When a great organization serving a great community issues a new mission statement, that's a big deal. And the Friends of Dreamland has one. Friends of Dreamland celebrates the community of historic West 9th Street, shares the legacy of Dreamland Ballroom, and preserves the original intent of Taborian Hall. Let's break that down. Celebrate the community. The men and women that lived, worked, and played in the West 9th Street neighborhood faced brutal social stigma every day, but thrived. We'll never forget this, and we'll always celebrate it. Share the legacy. 
There's no doubt that the most fun and fascinating facet of the history of Dreamland Ballroom are all the legends that graced the Dreamland stage. Unfortunately, it's taken only one generation to almost completely forget this great history. It promotes pride in our hometown when we remember it and encourages us to do everything we can to keep this community strong. And finally, preserve the original intent. Taborian Hall was built as a central fixture of commerce, community organization, and entertainment. And that's our mission statement now. We have a major legacy to live up to and a lot of work ahead of us, but we plan to move forward. See how you can help develop the new mission statement into reality. Visit dreamlandballroom.org. Quality products, expert service, outrageous support. Theflagandbanner.com. And now welcome back to Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy. Thank you, Chris. Chris, I don't know if you know this, but in my college days, I was the voice of Southeast Arkansas. On oh, you were on the radio? Excellent. KH, KHBM, Monticello. Okay. I did, uh, I did sports, play-by-play for the Monticello High School and for the University of Arkansas Monticello. So you love radio. Oh, I love radio. You're an audiophile. I, I, I used to make promos and i'd go to the station and you know had had interviews it right was, it was really fun these public uh radio okay. stations are really important for educating uh and letting young people get chances to try to be you know on the radio find out if you like it my daughter uh when she went to undergraduate school she was at new york university and when, while she was at nyu she did every day at like two o'clock she was on the air for WNYU, and ah. then she did the news and weather and all that Is stuff. Is that how come so, she decided to be a broadcasting? I think so. I think that's where she got her appetite for, you know, broadcast journalism. Well, let me tell everybody that I'm speaking today to retired neurosurgeon <laughs> and author, Dr. Stephen Cathy. Before the break, we talked about becoming a neurosurgeon, and then we talked about the stress and the life of being a neurosurgeon and how you prepare for it, and... Um, you know what a day and is like you know seeing and, patients and, and let me just add this real quick mm-hmm. we, we talked about my my profession and my my specialty but there are so many really great doctors out there primary care family practice who that phone rings at 2 30 in the morning and they're up and they're going to the hospital and they're going to the ER. And it's not just neurosurgeons that are committed. There are really, really fine physicians in the state. There are so many physicians and nurses. When you go to the hospitals, I am shocked at what a huge business that is. It is. It, it is. A, and, and good and bad. It has, in some ways, become a big money business, which is kind of a, you know, a little bit, not the way I think it should be that we focus on money as much as we focus on patient care, but that's just the nature of the business mm-hmm. of the beast. Everything's about money, yep, not just is. them. Everything it, is. You got to pay true. for it. Yeah, Even churches have to make money. Whenever I go to the church uh, um, uh, meetings and talk about money, and they always the, pass the plate. They pass that plate, <laughs> and I always try to make them, you know, do more things that have to do with money. And they go, "We're a church. We're not. It's not a business." I'm like, "Yeah, it is. We got to make some money, or the doors aren't or open. The doors won't be open." I know. Right. So let's talk about uh, past brain research. Correct me if I'm wrong, but prior to Obama, were we unable to do very much brain research? Were there limitations? No, there. Again, it's a little bit out of my area of expertise, but um, there has been progressive advances in neuroscience since I've been in practice. And I think the most exciting things and the challenges are going to be in the areas of like Alzheimer's research and dementia Mm -hmm. and you know, Parkinson's disease, and none of the, it's not the sexy stuff like brain surgery, but it's vitally important, and the research is important, and I I believe maybe over the next 30, 40 years, you're going to see cures for Alzheimer's, and you're going to see cures for Parkinson's disease. Do you believe vitamin E is really helpful for Alzheimer's? I I don't really have an opinion on it. So I no, so no. I, I would say no. Yeah, I have a girlfriend whose husband has it. And she's just feeding him vitamin E like crazy. Well, I don't think it's going to hurt him. Um, um, they didn't. I don't think. I thought I saw a special where 
prior to Obama, you weren't allowed to take the criminally insane's brains and cut them open. Is that true? Uh, I don't think it had anything to do with uh, President Obama. No, but I think it was politics for some reason. When I first went into my training back in the early 80s, there was an area kind of quietly discussed about lobotomy, where you would send a patient to a neurosurgeon who did what's called functional neurosurgery, and they would, you know, resect a part of the brain to ostensibly to treat seizures but in in all honesty what they were trying to do was prevent the patient from you know being a sex offender or you know being a you know quote unquote criminally insane but it kind of lost a lot of its validity as time went on and it, there were medications that were better uh, suited to treat if you if you want to say treat uh, to to deal with these individuals now I'm talking about dead people oh um no. about people who's criminally insane cutting their taking their brain and giving it to science and cutting it open to see if there was something about their brain different from other people's brain i i don't know about that particular type of research um i know that you would have to have a lot of permission well you'd have to have permission from families and what have you to do that, and I'm not really sure how much benefit would be gained by looking at the anatomical sections of a brain of a quote-unquote criminally insane individual. But I know that research has been done, so that and it had nothing to do with politics. It 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 was done. it just happened to be in that era, maybe that right, it was allowed. Right. So um, this, that brings me to Einstein's brain. Oh my gosh. That's a brain, man. That's a brain. But, you know, it's not any bigger than anybody else's. And this is one of the things I love about this show, is that I hate the fact that I'm under this deadline to read all this stuff. But I love the fact that it forces me to read all this stuff. And I have just been in just reading and watching. There's so much about Einstein's brain, about... And he don't. I, 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 and again, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of thinking outside the box on this. But I think Einstein was a professor at Princeton University in New Jersey, and he did donate his brain to science. And, mm-hmm. and what what I know about brain size doesn't necessarily correlate to brain function. I know that Lord Byron, the poet supposedly had the largest brain of any known human being. It was like average brain is 2.5 pounds and his was like 10. Whoa. <laughs> That's a heavy head to carry around. <laughs> Again, I, I'm just speaking way off the cuff there, so I don't know. But Lord Byron apparently Has the did, biggest brain. Had, a, had the had biggest a big brain, brain ever recorded, yeah. So does the size of your head actually have to do with the size of your brain? Do you know it does? Mm-hmm. And there have been studies uh, done on uh, with regard to Alzheimer's disease that people with big heads are less likely to, you know... Um, uh, contract Alzheimer's. So I'm looking at Chris over there. Saying Chris has got he's, a big head. He's he's in the he's safe. <laughs> you Thank are you. too, Kathy. I think I'm in trouble. To. I'm in trouble. I look pinched over here compared to y'all. Thank God I'm not a urologist on this show. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, that's a good one. Let's get one of those. All right. So this is what I wrote about right. Einstein's brain. Thomas Harvey in 1955 did the autopsy. Mm-hmm. He, in, it, was it at I don't remember, but I think you might be right. Seven hours after his death, he uh, took his brain out, and he, I don't know if this happened seven hours, but over the next period of time, he dissected it into 240 sections. Oh, wow. And he gave it to all of these scientists to see if they could find anything different about it. Chris, you're nodding like you knew this. No, no, no. I don't. It's interesting. Uh, I would be surprised if they found anything different about it. I can't believe you don't know this, that you're not curious to find out about this. <laughs> so, so this is what's really weird. Is in So he died in 55. Okay. In 1978, a journalist, Stephen Levy, uh, rediscovered that it was in Harvey's possession and found it in the trunk of his car in a cedar box in mason jars that he'd been carrying around in the trunk of his car for 20 years. Now, that mm. I did know. Hmm. I, did, I did hear that the pathologist had kept Einstein's brain. In the trunk of his car, in a mason jar. <laughs> so, in 2010, the Harvey family gave it to uh, the National Museum of Health and Medicine. And if you go there... Oh, and he took 14 photographs of it before he dissected it, which is good. 
And so they found out that he has, let's see, he has something unusual about it. His this, corpus callosum was big. What is that? It's the Are you uh, talking dirty to me? No, 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 no. Oh, it's okay. the part of the it's the it's the structure that connects the two hemispheres of the brain. And I, I just threw that out okay, there. Okay, this is what it is. The missing part he was miss his Sylvian Fisher. Sylvian Fisher, yeah. Was missing, which which made another part of his brain enlarged that was that was uh, oh, I didn't write down what that part was that would make him have uh, not very good verbal skills because he didn't learn to speak till he was very young, young, very old. But he had great imaginary, and so he could he could envision, you know, relativity. Right, that he discovered. right. He could think in three D, or he could think about relativity and those yes. theories. I, I know that Einstein was a basically a patent clerk in Vienna, yeah, and worked out uh, the theory that stars that went extinct billions of years ago are still shining and I, I think that's an incredible leap for science that you could figure out that that star you're looking at has not been uh, emitting any any sunlight or starlight for billions of years and einstein worked all that out and you have to imagine guy was smart and the other thing about einstein he was Apparently a very funny guy. Had yeah. a good sense of humor, and his students loved him, and, and I think that's important, too. You can be a brilliant man, but you also need to be a funny man. <laughs> I think humor is so important, especially if you're teaching. It's how you keep kind of engaged with your audience, I think. Told you. That's why I went into neurosurgery. Those were the funniest guys and had the best-looking girlfriends. So. So if you want to see a part of uh, Einstein's brain, it's on display in Philadelphia at the Mütter Museum, and they have sliced it up. Really? And it's under, yeah, you might like this, and it's under a microscope, and you can go up there and look through a microscope at it. Do you know, while you're talking about anatomical specimens, you can go to the National Military Museum in Washington, and John Wilkes Booth, who assassinated President Lincoln, they did an autopsy on him, and that he was shot through the neck when the Union troops caught up with him down in uh, Virginia. He was shot through the neck and was paralyzed when he died. They they dissected his spinal cord uh, where the bullet went through, and you can go to this museum in Washington and you can look at John Wilkes Booth's spinal cord. I, that's one of the that's on my bucket list. I want to do that one time before I die. Oh, wow. So what's Since new- we're speaking neurosurgery there. Yeah. I love all this stuff, really. Yeah, really. It's, it's, it's pretty interesting Absolutely. stuff. Um, so another thing about Einstein's brain, and then we'll quit talking about it. No, is I love Einstein. It had, let me see. Okay, these are called, Einstein's brain had more glial cells? Glial. Glial cells relative to neurons. What does well, that mean? Okay, there are two types of brain cells. Uh, glial is like the supporting cells. It's like if you eat a steak, the part of the steak that the gristle, for example, that's analogous to a glial cell. It's a supporting fibrous tissue. Mm-hmm. The neuron is the it's the nerve cell. It's what mm-hmm. you know allows you to smile, laugh, move your right arm, blink Send your signals. eyes. Send Send, the it, it's the it's the signal sender. Mm-hmm. And the glial cells is the are the cells that support the neurons. Mm-hmm. And most malignant brain tumors uh, arise from the glial cells. That's why they're called glioblastoma or a glioblastoma multiforme because they begin in the supporting cells of the brain and they're highly malignant. So he's lucky he didn't have yeah, if you got a brain tumor, he. So why would that make any difference to Einstein's intelligence? It doesn't. It seems I, like it'd be a handicap. I don't know enough about any this of information and this well, research it's all to conge- know. It's all conjecture. They can't right. prove anything. They have no idea. I mean, there's there's nothing. It's just all right. I mean, and I'm sure guesses. it probably is. In 1957, when 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 he died, 55. 55. I, I doubt that there was that much advancement in neuropathology to kind of know. Mm-hmm. And you, as you very aptly said, it's conjecture. It's all. Yeah. But but it is it is kind of interesting and fun to talk about. So let's talk about brain research. We've already talked about the fact that uh, we don't have to. It's 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 not as invasive as it used to be. That's correct. Is there anything else that's coming down? the pike that you think is going to be really interesting about that's going to affect Americans? I think the next great advance in neuroscience will be gene research, where you can actually 
use stem cells to perhaps uh, a patient that's got who has a spinal cord injury, for example. That would be a good one. And they could inject stem cells to regenerate a spinal cord. And I think that's coming. I don't think it's very close. I think it's going to be probably after our lifetimes. But It doesn't seem like it should be. Stem cells are well, already... Yeah, I know. But it is... Um, it, it it really is going to be a ways off. But I, I think that that's going to be a very brave new world when it comes to neuroscience research is is stem cells to treat strokes to treat spinal cord injuries to to treat you know brain tumors and those types of things let me just take a break congenital abnormalities so yeah congenital abnormalities uh, i'm just going to take a quick break and tell everybody you're listening to up in your business with me carrie mccoy and i'm speaking today with retired neurosurgeon and author dr stephen kathy all right you've got to know the answer to this one you're the one person that can know the answer to this nature versus nurture <laughs> you know the brain is it the chicken or the egg is yep. that <laughs> you've got to know the answer to that you've cut enough brains is it nature versus nurture is it nurture versus nature what do you think what's are your we, opinion are we taking a break or are we going to answer no, that, this? Already, that was the break i just told her that was a station break you know my opinion as a, a neurosurgeon a clinical neurosurgeon and not a research neurosurgeon my personal opinion is I think it's I think it's nurture. I really you do. You really do? I do. You think so when you look at all the brains you think they're all the same? No, not necessarily. I mean they there are congenital abnormalities, but I think if I took a child out of one environment into another one and changed the circumstances, I believe it's more nurture. But that is just an opinion of more a conjecture. Humble more conjecture. <laughs> yes, more conjecture. I thought maybe you were going to say, you know, no, you cut a brain open, they look so much different. They all look so much different, but they really they re- don't. They do really it. don't. They all they look really the same. Don't. Except I know Einstein didn't have a Sylvian Fisher. There you go. <laughs> and uh, who was that Baron that had a ten pound brain? Oh, Lord Byron. Byron. Yeah, the poet. Uh, all right. Well, Slept you wrote with uh, Mary Shelley, who wrote Frankenstein. Frankenstein. Yeah. <laughs> Really? Yeah. See? You learn something on this show. I I'm always a, learn something. I'm a renaissance man. <laughs> you really are. Uh, all right. Let's talk about the paper you wrote. The last oh. one in 73, 19, I mean, 27, 2017, you wrote a paper called Politics of Infection Disease. I did not read it. What's it about? But it sounds interesting. When I was chairman of the medical board, we had two of absolutely the most knowledgeable um informed infectious disease specialists in the country, not just in Little Rock. Dr. Joseph Beck, who was the chairman before I was on the medical board, and Dr. Tom Brasher over at UAMS. And they had put out some guidelines about how we treat HIV-positive or how we deal with HIV-positive physicians, specifically medical students, house staff, at the school, how do we do you do you reveal they're positive for HIV or do we reveal they're positive for hepatitis C and this type of thing? And the politics came in because their recommendations were the treatment's so good, it really doesn't it shouldn't matter. We don't really need to be telling patients that Dr. X or Dr. Y or Z has HIV or has Hep C. However, the politics overrode it. Transparency. They wanted. They said you got to you got to tell people this. And and my point was, politics still influences how we deal with infections. Just like during the polio epidemic, when you know municipalities would close swimming pools yeah. because there would be an outbreak of polio, and it, it dealt with President Roosevelt being elected president four times from a wheelchair, and that would never happen today. No. And it it was I I enjoyed researching that article, and I thought it was pretty good. So what so what are you trying to say? What I was saying is that you know there's not any politics related to taking out an appendix, but there's a lot of politics related to infections, particularly tuberculosis. because, they, because you can catch it. That's right. Absolutely, and and it prop, but, rightfully so. And it's a public. It's a public. Uh, it's public concern. Oh, it's you a public know. concern. And you know, uh, for example, when I was a senior in medical school, I had worked a lot at the VA, the old VA, 
as you say, retired. I'm old too. I worked down at the VA on Roosevelt, and I contracted TB. Uh, my my skin test became positive. Uh, it's called a PPD test, where they inject you with the, the the virus, the bacteria, and you have a reaction. And they said from now on, you never need to have another. TB test because you could really hurt yourself. It could be damaging to your skin. So now when the hospital would say, you need to come in and do your your TB test, I'd say, well, I'm positive. And they'd go, oh, well, then you don't have to have a test. And I, always, it, it, it just, I was amazed that now that I'm positive, nobody cares that I have it. But if I wasn't positive, they want to test me. They didn't do anything with that information. That's and what I was going to say. What they do with that information? No, nothing. They'd say, oh, you're positive. Uh, don't worry about it. Nobody has tuberculosis anymore. Are you cured? Or does it ever cure? Uh, Is it just dormant? It's dormant. I'm, I'm, I, my skin test would still be positive, but I've never manifested any of the, you know, productive cough or weight loss or chest abnormalities i just happened to got i got enough of exposure to the to the bacteria that that i tested positive and that that kind of made me wonder why do we have this test when you don't do anything with the information just tell tell you take precautions no for 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 with your patients you don't need to because you're not contagious that's right that's yeah, what that's I've been a told. Silly, that's a silly thing. It's a to... silly test, in my opinion. And that and that's what kind of piqued my interest in writing an article about the politics of infectious disease. Yeah. Because there's no politics related to a hysterectomy, but there's a lot of politics but related. But again, it's not contagious. But tuberculosis is not contagious, so I'm not it sure. Is. It is. It well, is but, contagious. But you said you're not contagious. Well, they, I, I've been told by my friends, they're pulmonologists, that I don't have to worry That's about it. That's such an old-fashioned It is. It's an, antiqu- it's an antiquated test, and... I, you know that that's why I wanted to write this article and just get people thinking you, about you it. You brought a up bit. so many things that have to do with my family. My grandfather died from tuberculosis. Oh, he did. My did daughter he? has trigomyalgia. Yeah. And my grandfather died from tuberculosis. What else can we talk about? Oh, we can talk about <laughs> anything. I've, did, did he go to the sanatorium up in Boonville? Because he was on his way to Arizona when he died. Oh, or okay. New Mexico, somewhere out there. That gotcha. was so long ago. It was probably the thirties. Gotcha. The treatment probably is much different now. Mm. Oh, absolutely. I didn't even know anybody even still had tuberculosis. Do you know the the same bacteria that causes TB is related to the bacteria that causes leprosy? They're very related. It's hard to tell the difference between the bacterium producing uh, tuberculosis and leprosy. Interesting. So uh, if 20 years ago, knowing what you know today, what advice would you give yourself? I would have probably taken some prophylactic treatment for it. Um, you know, they they recommended that I take this drug uh, called rifampin for about nine months, but I didn't want to take it because they said you couldn't drink and take it, so I took my chances, and I'm here today. You're doing just fine. <laughs> yeah, Good call. Yeah. <laughs> Good call. Uh, what do you want your legacy to be? My children. That's sweet. I, I want I want my children to be proud of me, and I want them to succeed. And so far, uh, they've been exceptional kids, and that's my legacy. Mm-hmm. Is I've tried to raise two really tremendous kids, and I hope that my patients will look back and say, Doctor Kathy was took care of me and took care of my family. That that's my legacy. Because brain surgery often makes people walk again, doesn't it? It does. Yeah. Absolutely. What, what is the what is the most common brain sur- surgery that you do? Probably? Trauma from a head injury. Mm-hmm. From a head injury, from a gunshot wound, or a depressed skull fracture, or you know, someone hitting you in the head. I'll tell you a quick story. I, mm-hmm. I know you're, we're on the clock here, but I was leaving a Razorback football game one night over at uh, Little Rock at War Memorial. And I get a call from the emergency room, and they call me, and they say, we've got a girl here who um, has been hit in the head with a beer bottle, and she's got mm-hmm. a fractured skull. So I went straight to the ER. First thing I do is get an X-ray, and she's awake, alert, talking. We get an X-ray, and she's got a bullet in her brain. <laughs> oh, my god! And I said, I said, I got some good news and some bad news. 
Good news is you didn't get hit in the head with a beer bottle. Bad news is you got shot in the head. But she did fine. We just took her surgery. And it can change your personality. But she just assumed, you know, something hit me in the head. It was a stray gunshot wound. Wow. It can change your personality a lot, though, can't it? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. For permanently. Absolutely, yeah. Depending on what part of the brain's injured, you know. Because some sides are angry? Well, some parts of the brain are more elegant. You know, you talk about the Sylvian Fisher. That's very elegant brain tissue. It's where your motor speech center is located. Whereas you can, you know, have a injury to the frontal lobe of the brain, particularly the right frontal lobe, because most people are right-handed. So that makes the oh, that's that right. makes the left side of the brain dominant. Mm-hmm. Oh, but, okay. But you, yeah, you depending on where the tumor is or the injury is de- determines the significance and the impact of the injury. Or the insult to the neurological tissue. Yeah. Do uh, different races have thicker skulls? You know, I don't know, Carrie. Um, I do believe African Americans have thicker skulls, and I think that's just part of the evolution mm-hmm. of the African continent and what, it, that type of thing. But I don't quote me on that. I have a friend who's a Native American, and she said she was in a car wreck, and that her boyfriend died from a head injury, and she didn't. And he said that it, it had it, to do with skull thickness. Mm-hmm. She, she said she's a Native American. And she said, and he told me that. I had a really thick skull. Uh, I, I wouldn't speculate on that, I honestly. I thought that was interesting, though. <laughs> yeah. I think that's, uh, to quote you, conjecture. That's more conjecture. <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, I think it's uh, time for me to give you your gift. Oh, my gosh. I hope it's a car. <laughs> <laughs> I do, too. Oh, That'd be nice. Oh, it's a desk you. set with a U.S., oh, Arkansas, and a, and a Marine. Marine. Thank yes. you so much. You're and, and thank you, Chris. Uh, you're very welcome. It was this a great is very show. thoughtful. I appreciate that. You're welcome. Thank you for coming on, Steve. I really Anytime. love Anytime. Call you. me again. All right, yeah. I will. I won't be retired next time. I think that may be true. <laughs> I've enjoyed hosting with you today, Chris. Absolutely, me as well. I've enjoyed talking to you so much, Steve Kathy. Thank you, Carrie. I thank you, Chris. You. Thank you. Um, I really enjoyed being here. Telling what I know. You tell it good, too. <laughs> uh, if you have a great entrepreneurial story that you would like to share, I would love to hear from you send a brief bio and your contact contact info to questions at upyourbusiness.org and finally to our listeners thank you for spending time with me if you think this program has been about you you're right but it's also been for me thank you for letting me fulfill my destiny my hope today is that you've heard or learned something that's been inspiring or enlightening and that it whatever it is will help you up your business your independence or your life i'm carrie mccoy and i'll see you next time on up in your business until then be brave and keep it up you've been listening to up in your business with carrie mccoy For links to resources you heard discussed on today's show, go to flagandbanner.com, select radio, and choose today's guests. All interviews are recorded and posted the following week. Subscribe to podcasts wherever you like to listen. Carrie's goal is simple, to help you live the American dream. 